is Baseball Tonight, the podcast. This is the Baseball Tonight podcast for Wednesday, June 14th, 2023. And today will be better than yesterday. Working from back in Bristol, Sarah Abbott, Taylor Schwenk on Buster Only, working from Montana. Uh, I will not be part of the broadcast team tonight uh, when they show the Mets in the Yankees, game two of that Subway series in City Field. And guys, think about this for Eduardo Perez, okay? You're both going to appreciate his travel. So we did that game on Sunday the other night. Uh, the Red Sox and Yankees. Uh, on Monday morning, Eduardo was scheduled to fly to London to be with his family because he was going to uh, attend a Harry Styles concert. Okay. <laughs> then he's flying back to New York uh, and he's got the game tonight Yankees and Mets. Then he's flying to Omaha tomorrow morning. He's working the College World Series. Then on late Saturday night, he's flying. Boston, because this Sunday we've got the Red Sox, we've got the Yankees and Sunday Night Baseball. Then he's flying to Omaha. Then he's going to L.A. and back to Omaha. That's 10 days in the life, uh, in the life of Eduardo Perez. What do you think? That sounds like absolute as hell. Soon, as soon as you said London, I'm like, he's going to the Harry Styles concert. I just know it. My <laughs> whole feed has been flooded with Harry Styles See, I concert. knew, Sarah, as I, as I said that, I was like, you know what? Sarah, Sarah, you're not going to hear anything I say after the Harry Styles concert. <laughs> <laughs> Harry Styles concert and Omaha, Nebraska. You're speaking my language right now. That's this true. I, 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 I withdraw my statement. You're exactly right. <laughs> oh, man. All right. Uh, so the Yankees last night, as they mentioned, they, they're playing the Subway Series game. One of that series, Giancarlo Stanton in the box in the first inning against Max Scherzer, who has to be part of a turnaround for the Mets if it's going to happen. And guess what? This is what happened in the first. I used to feel comfortable if I could reach the seats in a, in a certain area, but it doesn't matter to Stanton. He can reach seats anywhere. High drive, left field, going back McNeil on the track at the wall. He's done it again. See ya. one nothing Yankees. Michael, do I need an Emmy for my scouting report? I, I told you, different ballparks, you get home runs. It's just the way it is, and this is what they need. Obviously, Stanton can dominate offensively his sixth of the year. That, of course, was Paul O'Neill, Michael Kay on the Yes Network. Yeah, hanging breaking ball for Max Scherzer, which has been a problem. Uh, the Mets had a lead early in this one, and then in the top of the fourth inning, the Yankees started to come back. Driven out to left field and deep. McNeil back, turning, looking. See ya! A home run, a two-run shot for LeMayu. And it's now 5-3 Mets. That from the Yes Network, Scherzer was pulled in the midst of the fourth inning, not able to hold that lead. In the top of the sixth, the Yankees moved ahead. You're trying to get Donaldson so you can wait. You have some wiggle room against Stanton. High fly ball. Marte will make the catch. Tagging is McKinney. He'll score. Moving to third is Volpe. It's a sack fly for Donaldson in the pinch hit appearance, and the Yankees have retaken the lead 7-6. Drew Smith was to pitch the top of the seventh inning, but he was stopped by crew chief. Bill Miller checked his hands, and he was ejected for substance on his hands. Give a listen. Mets reliever Drew Smith as he came to the mound and was getting ready to deliver his warm-up tosses. It was determined by the umpires that he had some sticky stuff. And whatever that was the product of, Smith 
has been tossed from this game without having thrown a pitch. Yeah, and the Yankees are gone and hold the lead 7-6. to six. There was so much to break down in this game. The slumping Mets, Drew Smith's ejection, uh, where the Yankees are going to go from here. After the game, Buck Showalter wa- uh, talked about why Drew Smith was ejected. What was the explanation you got on Drew Smith? Uh, his hands were too sticky. Yeah. Oh, there's a few other things said and everything, but I'm not going there. Obviously, they thought his hands were, were uh, at too much, was too, too sticky. Here's Drew Smith, who faces a 10-game suspension. They said uh, both of my hands were too sticky. We saw, you know, obviously, you're arguing back with them. Just what was your level of surprise in that moment? Uh, really surprised because I haven't done anything different all year. I was sweating rosin. Like, I, I don't know what else to say. Um, nothing changed. And it's just, I think the process is so arbitrary. It can change from one crew to the other. And uh, I think that's the main issue, but it just sucks for the team um, not having a guy for 10 days and being a man down for the roster spot. That was Steve Gelbs of SNY who asked that question. And after the game, Max Scherzer talked about, uh, from his perspective, that when umpires do something like this, you really should be backed by spin rate data. Uh, And that's an interesting point that Max made. He also uh, addressed why he struggled in that game. I struggled with my slaughter. Uh, every time I was throwing my slaughter, uh, it was hanging. Uh, it wasn't. I wasn't executing it the way I need to, uh, especially with two strikes. I was not getting the pitch in the locations that I wanted to, no matter what my thought process was with it. I mean, whether I was trying to step on it or just trying to throw it naturally, or even just try to kind of back off and trust that I could get it to you know the spots I wanted to, it was hanging in all situations, and you know that's what really you know, that's what they were doing damage on me against. So um, you know. I don't think it's necessary back to drawing board. I got to make a little fix on it because um, when you go out there and pitch, like you know when you rip a slider and you know when you rip it in, in the right locations. And I had the feeling that I was ripping, you know, coming through the baseball, like my my action was to get in those locations and it just wasn't there. So um, usually that's just a little fix to get everything right on time. And then, you know, you get it back because at the end of the day, I can pitch with a slider. And look, the, the numbers back up what he was saying. I was texting back and forth with Sarah Langs after the game last night, and she uh, noted that last year Max had a swing and miss rate on his slider, 46%. This year it's down to 32%. In last night's game, he threw nine sliders. He had one swing and miss. It's going to be a big question for Scherzer next time he takes the mound. The Phillies played the Diamondbacks last night. Kyle Schwarber, as we know, owns the month of June. This is what happened leading off the first. Davies with a pitch. Swung on, blasted. Deep down the right field line. Hooking towards the corner, but it's a fair ball, and it is long gone. A massive leadoff home run for Kyle Schwarber. And the Phillies are on the board first. It's one to nothing. Schwarber's 18th home run of the season. That was Scott Fransky, Sports Radio 94 WIP. The Phillies won on a blowout. The Diamondbacks 15-3. to Zach Nito has been terrific since he was placed as the Angels shortstop, and he helped them extend their lead in the top of the ninth inning against the Rangers last night. Here's the next delivery on Neto. Swings and lifts a high drive deep out into left center field, and that ball lands in the Angels' bullpen. Neto has just hit a two-run homer right there, his sixth home run of the season. And the Angels add on that one nearly 400 feet. Angels now have a 6-3 lead. 
That was Terry Smith, Angels Radio, AM 830. Yeah, Zach Neto, uh, he has helped this turnaround for the Angels. Taylor, I don't know if you saw the standings or looked at the standings recently. The Angels are now seven games over 500. They're just one game in a third wild card spot. They're not going to trade Otani. Well, that's good news for the Angels. Bad news for the rest of the, the playoff teams in the American League. I mean, it, it's it's getting rough out there, man. But I'm happy for the Angels because, you know, I, I feel like this is long overdue. Yeah, well, yeah, this could be the Angels' best season since 2014. We're going to be talking with Alan Gonzalez about that coming up. Hot Ticket is brought to you by Vivid Seats, the official ticketing partner of ESPN. They have great deals on the hottest tickets. Experience it live. Mariners, Marlins last night, the red-hot Marlins, but Mike Ford had himself a day. The 1-0 pitch, the Ford swinging a well-hit ball again into the gap in right center field. Going and going, he did it again. Mike Ford with his second home run of the night. Holy smokes, his fourth home run since coming up from Triple A Tacoma. It's now the Mariners 9 and the Marlins 3, and what a night for Ford. That from Seattle Sports, 7, 10 a.m. The Rockies, the Red Sox in Fenway Park. The Red Sox desperate to gain traction, but in the top of the 10th inning, this happened. The one pitch to Gritchick, and a ground ball. He has fair down that left field line. That'll score at least one. Scoring is Montes. Being waved in, Jones. Here comes a throw home. No throw. It's cut off. Into second base, Randall Gritchick. A two-run double. Rockies break the tie in the 10th. 6-4, to four, Colorado. On the way to a 7-6 win. That from 8.50 KOA. The Twins trailed the Brewers in the bottom of the ninth inning. They tied the score. And Carlos Correa came to the plate. And the 1-1, a blast to left field. Back it goes. Deep it goes. Twins win. Twins win. The Minnesota Twins win it. Carlos Correa off the ribbon board in left field. A game ending. A game winning two-run homer. And the Twins walk off Milwaukee 7-5 here at Target Field. From Corey Probus, Treasure Island Baseball Network, Astros, Nationals, and friend of the show, Martin Maldonado, got it done in the bottom of the seventh. And the 1-0 pitch. Breaking ball, that's belted. Down the line, stay fair, it does. Five rows deep into the Landry's Crawford boxes, and Maldonado jumps ship. It's three-zip. That call from friend of the show, Steve Sparks. Sparksy, KBME, 790 AM. Orioles, Blue Jays, and Gunnar Henderson went deep again. He's red hot. Bases loaded, 1-0. Henderson swings a long drive out towards center field. Kiermaier backing up in front of the bullpen wall. He leaps, and it's a grand slam. Don't let Gunnar Henderson get hot. The kid has ripped this one wide open in the third. 387 feet for Gunnar Henderson and an 8-1 to lead for the Orioles. That was Melanie Newman, WBAL. Orioles win 11-6. The ones who get it done is brought to you by Granger. With supplies and solutions for every industry, Granger has the right product for you. All click Granger.com or just stop by. You know who got it done? Fans of the Oakland Athletics who staged a reverse boycott on Tuesday. More than 27,000 fans poured into the Coliseum. They wanted to demonstrate, look, if there's been a problem with the franchise, it's not a problem that they have created. They support the team. 
during the course of the game, uh, the A's crowd began to chant about owner John Fisher. Give a listen. He's swinging a fair ball inside the third base line, and Siri's going to turn and make his way to second, and he has notions about third. He'll put the brakes on as Seth gets it back in. Crowd goes silent and now getting very loud at the Coliseum. They were chanting, sell the team. Here was the final call as Oakland won for the seventh straight game, beating Tampa Bay 2-1. to one. The A's have won it. On a night of incredible emotion, of the night, the Oakland A's, the raucous crowd behind these players tonight, have beaten the Tampa Bay Rays by the final of 2-1. to one. So think about all that went into this night. You had the, the fans with the reverse boycott. You had Oakland winning seven straight games, playing the best team in baseball, and as that was going on, the Nevada Senate passed a $380 million bill on Tuesday to help fund a new stadium for the athletics in Vegas. The first step toward the expected move of the franchise from Oakland is our friend Jeff Passan wrote. Uh, it looks like now this is going to get done and they're going to move the team out of Oakland. And Taylor, as this is going on last night, the athletics franchise sent out this really unusual tweet. So the tweet they decided, uh, you know, they decided this whole thing was a really good idea. I would disagree, but they said that they are donating all ticket revenue uh, to a charity, which I, I cannot recall what charity it was. But not only did they say that, they tweeted out the exact number, which was a little over $800,000 in ticket revenue for a half full stadium. Hmm, Buster, do you think the other <laughs> owners are going to be happy about that? You know, you know, they're very protective of their books, as we've covered on this podcast before. Yeah, but we also know that they'll completely look the other way, right? They'll yep. see an owner uh, cut his payroll to the bone, tank the season, seemingly uh, feed into the demise of the Oakland athletics. And it did feel like, and, and who knows whose idea this was, didn't it feel like that it was almost like the, the athletics franchise dropping a you know middle finger toward their fan base and saying, you know what? We just got $380 million from the Senate in Las Vegas, and we're headed there, and we're not taking your money. That's the way I, I read it. What about you? Uh, yeah, it's it's pretty gross. I feel awful for the the fans there. I honestly like hearing the 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 massive sell the team chance. I got like a little emotional. I was like, that is like it's just it's just such a bummer knowing what these teams mean to people and and how they intertwine with their lives. Like it was just so cathartic, but ultimately very sad. So uh, you know, it's pouring one out for the Ace fans this morning. That's tough. Yep, no doubt about it. What else you got? Buster, let's promote your Instagram today because we're talking to Skip Schumacher and Tyler Glass now on the podcast. Uh, so go over there if you want to see clips of their faces, including Tyler Glass now. I, I didn't say this to him, you know, when we were talking, but he's a very dreamy gentleman. So uh, I would rec recommend that. And also, before you hopped on, Buster, here's here's a look behind the scenes. I, I people probably saw the the viral image of of quote unquote him. Uh, you know, pitching this weekend, and he looks a lot like Cillian Murphy of Peaky Blinders fame 
um, from you know from the Christopher Nolan Batman movies. And I asked him uh, about the picture, and he blew my mind. He was like, "Oh, that was AI, first of all." Um, and he said, second of all, I've never been confused for Cillian Murphy seriously," which also surprised me. But there you go. <laughs> We're doing important work over here. So check it out at Buster Olney. Well, I appreciate it. You know, and he's such a fun guy, too. I never forget the first time I talked to him, I asked him if he had any tattoos, and I'm looking at him, and there was nothing that was apparent, right? He was wearing a T-shirt, and and he goes, yeah, I got two, and he started laughing. He lost two bets. He had one uh, tattoo on the bottom of his foot and the other on the inside of his lower lip. (laughs) (laughs) And I just couldn't imagine the pain that went through. So, yeah, talking to Tyler, talking to Skip, Alden, Dave Schoenfield, it's going to be a fun show. You can now stream the most MLB games on DirecTV without a satellite dish. Yes, the clutch hits, the strikeouts, grand salamis, web gems, with nothing on your roof. So whoever's up there, whether it's roofers, Santa, birds, old-timey chimney sweeps, moody teenagers, thrill-seeking raccoons, you name it, they won't find a satellite dish. But you will find your MLB games on DirecTV. That means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season. Root, root, root with nothing on your roof. Call 1-800-DIRECTV or visit directtv.com. Sign up today. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. For the ones who get it done, Granger offers high quality supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as access to product specialists who have the knowledge and experience to answer your toughest questions. Plus, their commitment to being your safety partner can help you keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Alden Gonzalez covers baseball for ESPN. And in fact, Alden, you are going to be working. Uh, the sidelines for tonight's broadcast uh, of the game between the White Sox and the Dodgers. Who's on the broadcast team with you? Yeah, we're going to have Roxy Bernstein and Jessica Mendoza and uh, Tim Kirchin. Clayton Kershaw is going to be on the mound, uh, a Dodgers team that for some, that is somehow not in first place right now because of the errors on the Diamondbacks and against the White Sox offense that just needs to get going for this team to have any chance in a very bad American League Central. Really looking forward to it. Nice. Well, that'll be fun. Uh, I'll make sure to, to have that on the background here. Uh, you know, we're having a birthday party here at our house. And so it, it will, uh, you know, I'm glad you're doing that. And, uh, you know, as the season goes along, I bet you we're going to see you more uh, in that capacity. All right. Last night, the Oakland Athletics uh, played against Tampa Bay Rays. So much going on, as we said at the top of the show. Seven straight win. And fans showing up in what they call the reverse boycott, 27,000-plus. And at the same time, the the Nevada State Senate approves funding for a new ballpark in Las Vegas. What uh, you know, did you make of all that as it played out? Man, Buster, what a scene. I actually – so I came, I came home from Dodger Stadium really late last night, and I was staying in bed, and all I kept doing was pulling up highlights on, on Twitter and watching every clip that I could of the energy – at the Coliseum that night. Um, you know, it made me, I'm sure a lot of people had this emotion. I was impressed. Um, it made me kind of happy for the fans to experience something like that with that team. I mean, whoever thought that this team would win seven games in a row, no less beating a team as good as the Rays. Um, but it, it made me sad. 
it made me sad because it reminded me of the type of energy and the type of passion that those fans have for that team. And it was just another reminder that this needed to be figured out because Oakland deserves not just baseball, Oakland deserves the A's. And they've shown so often that when that team is good, and we've had several cycles of that team being good since the start of the new millennium, those fans are passionate. I mean, I'm sure you've been there for playoff games and just yep. the atmosphere and that ballpark when the games really matter. And how could you blame these fans? Not just for what type of product they've put out there, but, you know, just the highs and lows of this fandom. They didn't deserve this. They're not going to follow the team to Las Vegas. The A's aren't going to have this in Vegas, not even close and, you know, I, I saw some quotes in the, in the story from Tim Kewen, uh from, from the mayor of Oakland saying that they were days away from being able to agree to something that would make it work at the Howard Terminal site. I don't know if that is actually true, but if it is, and John Fisher just really did use this all as leverage to get to Las Vegas, what a sad and awful thing because those people, those people are the ones who are going to be the ones affected by it. Those people and those fans are the ones that make these franchises matter. And they're the ones that are getting played through all of this. It makes me honestly sad and angry, but I'm glad. I'm so happy we had last night. Everything came together perfectly for last night. I wish I would have been there because it seemed awesome. Yeah, because, you know, it essentially put Klieg lights on John Fisher and what this is really all about. Look, you and I have seen owners who look at the their – uh, stewardship of teams is being essentially a public trust. Uh, you know, I've had that conversation with, uh, you know, Peter Seidler, for example, the owner of the Padres. He wants to see the team win. He likes the city being excited about the, about baseball and about his team, which is why he did what he did. Mike Illich was like that when he owned the Detroit Tigers. Um, you know, I think Hal Steinbrenner, the Yankees owner now feels this way, having inherited this team from his dad, uh, George, and there are a lot of owners, I think I think Steve Cohen feels that way, that he bought the Mets in part because as a Mets fan, he understood how important this franchise is. And then on the other end of the spectrum, uh, there are a handful of owners where it's all about money, right? And it feels like with John Fisher, this has been made absolutely clear by the way this played out where it's like, yeah, they've, they've talked to Oakland and other uh, cities about possible ballpark situations and ballpark deals. And it really came down to, it's amazing how little money it actually came down to when you're talking about how yep. close the athletics franchise was to agreeing to a, a new ballpark with Oakland. Yes. Absolutely. And, and you know what, as, as this stuff started playing out, everybody made the popular reference to major league and how the owner uh, stripped the team bare to, to basically get it to relocate. And I always thought all along, like, okay, that's hilarious, but it can't actually be this simple. And the longer this has played out, I've actually come to realization that, like, yeah, it actually was exactly that simple. It's awful, Buster. I hate it. Yeah, it's terrible. My personal rule on the uh, athletics ballpark situation is until they put a shovel in the ground, uh, I'm just – not going to assume that it's going to get done in Las Vegas. Where are you on that? Are you at this point like, you know what? It's it's basically a fait accompli. I had your mindset, Buster, uh, because obviously we've had, they've had so many starts and stops on this over the last 10 years, especially. Um, 30. But, 
Yeah, no, yeah, you're, I guess you're right, 30. <laughs> um, Your whole life, the Oakland ballpark situation has been lingering. Right, that's right. Um, and, and maybe I'm naive on this and I'll be wrong. And I hope I am. But I think I had that mindset until yesterday. Uh, yesterday made it seem as if, like, yeah, this is definitely going to happen, unfortunately. All right. Uh, I wanted to talk to you because you've been our uh, lead reporter on the situation with RSNs and failure, you know, uh, uh, bankruptcies with the, the, you know, the, the television companies broadcasting these team rights. And from 30,000 feet, you know, I'm not going to ask you to break down each team's individual situation, but thir- from 30,000 feet, what's going on with these RSNs? Oof, where to begin? Uh, this has actually been my life for the last few months, to be honest, Buster. Um, well, I think it's an, and a lot of people that you'll talk to in the industry will tell you that it is an inevitability that the cable model is eroding to the point where really quickly um, these uh, cable companies are not going to deem themselves profitable because of people cutting the cord on cable. And we're starting to see this with Diamond Sports Group and teams, well, at least one team falling out of their ownership and MLB taking over. We've already had it with the Padres. The Padres now run. Um, Major League Baseball now runs the Padres broadcast, and we might see it soon with a few more teams, including the Rangers, who are due a payment at the end of this week. They might fall out as well. Um, The goal for Major League Baseball, although they don't want that to happen this year because it might be a little bit too soon, is to get all teams under its owner, not ownership, but under a national umbrella where they control the broadcasting rights for all teams. They feel like with the shifting landscape to digital, that that long-term is going to be the best way for these teams to attain profitability. The problem with this approach, Buster, and I'm not saying, I don't know that there's anything else that they could do about it, but there are going to be short-term losses from owners. Now, Rob Manfred uh, testified at a hearing in bankruptcy court a couple of weeks ago in Houston, and he revealed that Major League Baseball had promised the owners of the 14 teams that are under Diamond Sports Group, which is Valley Sports, that Major League Baseball was going to backstop them so that they get paid at least 80% of the rights fees that they were promised this year. So the Padres will make 80% of the rights fees this year, so they still lose tens of millions of dollars, but they get that. The problem is, what about next year? That's only a promise for this year. And so you're asking me for my overarching view on this um i'm very interested about the economics of this because mlb feels like eventually these teams are going to be profitable under a national umbrella short term though there's going to be a dip and the fact that the padres are the first team to fall out a padres team that a lot of other owners think it's overspending what kind of impact is that going to have i mean especially i'll be uh, the fact that they're not winning right now but that's beside the point um I'm very interested to see how this plays out, interestingly enough, in the short term, um, more so than the long term. But long term, um, you know, the way we watch games, the viewership habits for um, baseball games will going to change forever. So I'm curious. I, I have some theories on all this uh, based on the history of, of the NFL broadcast rights. OK, uh, probably it, when Wellington Mara, the longtime owner of the New York Giants, agreed to defer the Giants' local broadcasting rights to a national deal, that to me changed everything for the NFL because it meant that you know a team with 
potentially greater individual uh, income uh, than any other team, the Giants saying, you know, for the greater good, we're going to put our television rights under the umbrella of the National Football League. And the whole sport, I think, has grown. Right. Yeah. I mean, you've heard about all these blackout rules uh, with with baseball's broadcast. Part of that is is because of all these competing RSNs. I think that situation is going to get better. I think and I I don't know if they're going to get all 30 teams uh, under the Major right. League Baseball umbrella for broadcasting. You know, I don't know if the Yankees with a Yes Network will ever defer in the way the Giants did. But big picture for the fan, I think it actually could be good in terms of having access. Um, you know, I do have some concerns about the messaging that, you know, because you, let's face it, you and I can watch a New York Mets game and you are going to have – uh, absolutely. <laughs> You're going to have a transparent broadcast where they're going to hit on uh, on everything and they're going to be critical. I don't know if that ne- necessarily would happen if Major League Baseball is controlling all 30 team broadcasts. For example, guys, I was watching Quick Pitch this morning from the Major League Baseball Network. There was not a mention, not a word spoken about the fan boycott a reverse boycott that they went last night. There wasn't any talk of the athletics ballpark situation in Las Vegas. I think that's unfortunate. So I, I kind of have these competing emotions watching all this play out, Alden. That, that's an interesting thought. I, I hadn't thought about it in that way. I will tell you that, um, at least with the Padres situation, I think it's going to happen a lot with the other teams. Um, the same broadcasters will be part of this. And I think the same because usually there are freelance contracts, the same producers and camera operators are going to be a part of this. Um, the question I'll ask you though, Buster, um, and I don't know the answer to this, um, MLB controlling it versus the individual teams controlling it. Would it the um, bias sort of be the same, right? I mean, teams, themselves don't want negative portrayals. Maybe I would think it'd be even less so if it's Major League Baseball controlled as opposed to individual team controlled. Am I wrong about that? Um, no, you're, you're potentially, uh, you can be right, but I'll give you an example. Last night, uh, you know, the Rays broadcast focused a ton on what the fans were doing in Oakland, right? Because they don't, they don't know anything to the Oakland Athletics right. broadcast if it were a national broadcast under the umbrella of Major League Baseball, you wonder how that if that would be different. Uh, you know, I know this. If Gary Cohen, the, the play-by-play man on SNY for the Mets, is doing a game and there's some situation going on with the Marlins or the Phillies or any other team, he's going to tell you exactly what's going on. And right. I'm going to be curious to see if that continues if all these teams are put under Major League Baseball. Yeah, that's a good point. And I would just hope that the individual broadcasters can just continue to be themselves I would hope so because the one thing that MLB has strived for, at least in this process, as teams potentially shed this year, is continuity. They don't want any disruption. But I am, I'm so happy that you brought up the point that you did about this being better for the fans because that is exactly where our focus should be. Even though I'm interested as to how this affects team payrolls, if it ultimately does, I don't think there's any doubt that you're right about this being better for the fans simply because of the blackout problem. And every time you hear Rob Manfred do one of these big scrums in the media, one thing that he brings about and one thing that he says is that MLB's number one goal is to increase its reach and to get rid of these blackouts 
because they have greatly debilitated MLB's ability to have reach. And we saw this with the Padres. I mean, when the Padres fell under MLB's ownership and games were provided on MLB.tv without blackouts, they said that their reach was going to increase instantly by about 3 million fans or something in the San Diego area. This is a problem for every major league team within their respective markets. And you can't grow the game that way. So simply being able to shed those blackouts, I think is going to do wonders for the future of baseball. Uh, You're also right (laughs) in that uh, I don't know about the Yankees or the Mets or the Red Sox or the Dodgers even um, wanting to be part of this, at least initially. They're they're going to drive a hard bargain. But I, I think a lot of people, MLB officials, and other owners that I've spoken to are pretty confident that within three years, maybe like 25 of the 30 teams are already part of MLB's purview because this stuff is accelerating that quickly. The model is changing that quickly. Yeah, no doubt. Wellington Maris' decision to defer to the National Football League with the television rights in the end is a dominoes fallout that helped teams like the Jacksonville Jaguars, right? Uh, it helped yep. team like the the Texans. It helped teams that weren't necessarily in the biggest markets. And in the same way, uh, all of these teams under one umbrella for Major League Baseball to negotiate a big contract and have all kind of leverage, it's going to help teams like Cleveland. It's going to help teams like Tampa Bay, I think. And, and uh, you know, you're never going to have, I don't think, a, a full-on salary cap in baseball the way you do in other sports. But I do think that uh, getting all the broadcasting rights under Major League Baseball control is going to give more revenue to those small market teams. All right, Alan, great to talk with you. Uh, good luck tonight on the broadcast. I'll be watching. Appreciate that, Buster. And I'm best heard on mute, so I'm glad that there's a birthday party at your house. Tyler Glasnow pitches for the Tampa Bay Rays, who, of course, have had the best record in baseball for all this year. Uh, Tyler, tell me what it's like to play on a team like this this season. It's been awesome. Uh, we've had like such a good team dynamic for the, all the years that I've been here, but I think like just this core of people that have gotten like more familiar and like kind of found their place, I guess it just all kind of has come together nicely this year. And we knew last year too, like everything on paper, we knew we were a, a really good team. Um, but then this year is like kind of like a whole nother animal and everyone's just kind of clicking really well and everyone's playing great. You know the personalities better than anybody. Uh, how did that sort of come together going into the next level this year? I don't know. I think just like time spent with one another and stuff. I think like during the spring training too, Cash and a lot of the people like, I feel like it was just our biggest thing was like everyone just be together. And like we have such an easy going type of like, I don't know how to put it. Like we don't really have like rules. There's no like unwritten rules or there's no like uh, weird, uncomfortable big league things. So I think it's easy to like become comfortable on this team. And I think just like the extra time spent with one another and like doing stuff together in spring and just starting out the year hot and it kind of just the snowball get starts to roll and just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And then everyone's confidence grows. And I think it's just like a couple different things, but I think the talent is the number one thing, but then I, as all the other stuff is helpful. <laughs> Tell me when you felt like this group would get off to a, a great start. You know, was that during spring training? Or was it was sort of a day-to-day thing at the outset of the season. I think for, I was sitting in the dugout in spring training, talking to Sua, uh, Justin Sua, and I remember just kind of sitting. I think like every year in spring, people have like different times that they evaluate the team. But I remember sitting in the dugout, being like, "We're going to be pretty good." Like everyone kind of had the same 
same feeling. I think talking to some front office guys and talking to people throughout the offseason and getting in season, they were like over the moon excited, like with the group of guys we had. And I think as spring went on, it was just became more obvious and obvious uh, how good we were. Are. I think Shane McClanahan might be the best pitcher on the planet. What do you see in him? Yeah, it's been amazing. I feel like a lot of times you get into the big leagues early on and it's it's kind of a struggle to begin with, but he just kind of like hit the ground running. He came up in the playoffs in what year was that? 20, which is a hard time to come in, obviously, as a rookie. And so I think getting thrown into that fire in the beginning kind of like just got him acclimated. Maybe like the following season, just this it didn't seem as like stressful but he's kind of he's a guy who doesn't really I don't think like the stress or the pressure of the game really gets to him I think he's just like such a good competitor that he kind of just came in with confidence and um he's a really likable dude and he knows I think just being in this organization he already knew a lot of the guys coming up um but yeah he hasn't I don't think I've seen the guy do bad like once he's just an amazing pitcher and I think like if there is a time where he starts to struggle or something he's so good with all four of his pitches that he can just switch up pitch count do whatever like do whatever he wants he's not really predictable um yeah he's he's a phenomenal pitcher one of the best i've ever seen what kind of feedback do you get from opponents on shane mcclanahan yeah I, the biggest thing is just how unpredictable he is i feel like he throws four pitches like 24 25 percent of the time it's just like there's not really like uh i don't know i just think because he can throw every pitch uh, for a strike, he, he can just throw them whenever. And I think it keeps hitters off balance. It's not like he's got tendencies that he falls into. Um, I think, and I think him just throwing a hundred, <laughs> like every pitch is really good, is super helpful. And his extension's insane too. He's not like a super tall guy, but he gets off the mound extremely well. And I think he releases the ball like seven plus feet, and it's at like average of ninety-seven miles per hour with like three plus off-speed pitches. So it's just like good old-fashioned, really hard to hit baseball. The big conversation in baseball this year is, of course, about the pitch clock. What's been your experience? So I've only had like three games with it, a couple in AAA as well. I haven't noticed too much. Um, I think for me, I've always been a lot better if I operate quickly. So I think when they came out with the pitch clock, I was like, All right, I don't think this is going to like affect me very much. There have been a couple games like in Boston. There was a few uh, violations. I think sometimes like when runners get on and certain things happen, like the game – gets a little quicker whether you know it or not I think like it just I feel like I'm going quick and then I look up and there's like two seconds left but that's it's kind of rare but for the most part like I haven't I haven't really thought about it at all while I'm pitching yeah I love it like I'm a starting pitcher so like you said I'm like once every five or six days and like sitting there for four hours or four and a half hours sometimes gets really annoying um so I I think it's I think it's awesome I just think the pace of goes quicker it feels very like just a lot more action I think like Players and fans can probably unanimously kind of like anytime a pitcher takes like 40 seconds in between pitches, that just kind of takes away from the rhythm. It kind of takes away from the defenders and the flow of the game. Um, and I, I think it's it's been pretty great overall. Uh, yeah, with everything. You guys just played the Texas Rangers who've been a big surprise in baseball. What was the vibe like in that series? Uh, we obviously knew they were going to be a, a challenging team. I just think like having such a, a great offense, like we know – I guess we knew as pitchers going in how good they were. I think for the most part, nobody really like. I think what makes us good is like everyone on our team has a very like glaring strength, whether it's like one pitch or two, or if it's like execution or whatever it is, everyone on our staff has something they can get anyone out with. So I think our mentality going in was like, we're not really going to change what we're doing depending on the team. Like, I guess you can, you kind of look into tendencies and like who's aggressive and 
who hits off speed or who hits heaters better. But for the most part, our uh, our like strategy as a pitching staff has been like do what you guys do best. And I think ours is our biggest thing. Like the coaches and everyone uh, repeat is just get strike one, get strike two, and put them away. So I think our biggest thing is just trying to get strike one, be ahead of the count. And then like the the stats of that kind of speak for themselves. So it was it wasn't like too much of a change. Uh, we obviously like respected how good of, like hitters they were, but we just stuck to our strengths. So Tyler, the first thing that jumped out at me the first time I ever talked to you uh, was that you are a really big baseball fan. Who's a player on another team that you like to watch? I'm kind of, I like watching people that I've like played with and developed relationships with. Um, as far as like just watching someone from afar that's a good question um obviously Shohei but that's a boring answer it's not boring it's just like everyone wants like um probably like and like Trout too that's another like obvious um oh who can I think of that's like a unique answer now you of course started your professional career with the Pittsburgh Pirates with Andrew McCutcheon what's it been like to see him to see the Pirates this season yeah, that was finding out he signed back there. It was awesome. Um, and I think it's it's really encouraging to see that team doing so well as well and kind of having like a young core. Um, I was there for so long that like I still very much like root for them. You know, it's just I think I've been there for a long time. And I think so to what baseball means to that city as well, like they're so they love sports so much. And I think whenever they like weren't doing well, it was always like, dang, like it kind of probably sucks for the city. I'm sure people there like. I get a little frustrated, but like, as when you watch them do well, it's amazing, especially with Kutch, like playing with him and me being such a young guy, when I came up, he was always so nice. And I was so nervous when I first got called up to the big leagues and he was always just like the coolest dude ever. And it was just like very welcoming. And everyone on that team was awesome and super nice. Um, and I, I got to have like some really good conversations with him and stuff in the dugout and he's just a good dude, but, and obviously just like a phenomenal player. And I think the familiarity with being back there and his wife's family is from there. And I know he like lives there. So that probably has to feel good being there with his kids too. I'm sure that takes a lot of like other stresses away. Um, but it's, yeah, it's awesome to see him play so well. And I think to be like the the leader on the team, how he was then, but having like that young group of players kind of like be able to see how he goes about the game. And he's, I'm sure he's just like a calming force around the clubhouse, but it's been awesome to watch from afar. All right, uh, Tyler, I love that you're back pitching. You're so much fun. The Rays are a fun team to watch. Thanks for doing this. All right, appreciate it, man. Thanks for having me on. Dogs are an important part of our lives, and keeping them protected is a top priority, especially against nasty parasites. That's why you got to check out NexGuard Plus, a Foxaloner, Moxidectin, and pyrantal chewable tablets. NextGuard Plus chews provide one and done monthly protection that kills fleas and ticks, prevents heartworm disease, plus it treats and controls roundworms and hookworms. That's a whole lot of protection packed into a delicious beef flavored soft chew designed to make monthly dosing easy and enjoyable. So the next time you're at the vet, ask about NextGuard Plus chews. They're the one and done monthly parasite protection you want for your dog. Used with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurological disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting preventive. Vivid Seats wants to get you to the games you love this spring. Experience every pitch, assist, and game-winning shot live and in person. And the best part? 
Each transaction is a step toward a free 11 ticket with Vivid Seats rewards. Score unbeatable perks like free tickets, surprise seat upgrades, and annual birthday deals. As the official ticketing partner of ESPN, Vivid Seats is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with code baseball. That's code baseball. Visit vividseats.com or download the app today. Vivid Seats, experience it live. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the show, mate. Welcome to the show. Whoa! Welcome to the show, baby. You're in the show with David Schoenfield. David Schoenfield, of course, covers baseball for ESPN. Dave, how you doing? I'm doing great, Buster. Hope same. Uh, hope you're doing well as well. Boy, that's a great that's, intro there. <laughs> uh, you know, you have the. I think that might be the best. You and Book Shambi, the legends. Like those are <laughs> awesome, right? You just can't beat them. Uh, I've got my doors closed behind me, as you can see. My dogs are outside. Where's Lily today? Uh, my dogs are outside on the deck below my window. So, uh, assuming there's no bears, hopefully they'll be quiet during our little interview here. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's okay. It's a, it's a dog friendly zone. So even if they bark and they say hello to you or say, come on, let's get outside. Uh, you know, we're all good with that. All right. Last night, uh, at city field, it feels like a worst case scenario is playing out for the Mets. Uh, they get, uh, they, they blow a lead against the Yankees. Max Scherzer's relieved in the fourth inning. Uh, Dave, I did get up this morning and a, you know, simple question was what's wrong with the Mets. And I really feel like it's a simple answer with the way the team was designed. This is the most expensive rotation in the history of baseball, 130 million spent on this group of starters, uh, to put that number into perspective, that number spent on their rotation is higher than 12 teams, total payroll, right? Uh, and with Pete Alonso out, especially with Edwin Diaz out, that rotation has to be dominant. And yet, as you and I speak, they rank 26 out of 30 teams in rotation ERA at 5.06. They're not going to be a Mets turnaround to me unless that changes. What do you think? No, and look, we knew going into the year, Justin Verlander, Max Scherzer, as great as they've been, as great as they both were last year, they're up there in years, Buster. We can relate a little bit. And at that age, there's always going to be some risk with those two guys. And right now, neither are pitching well. Verlander obviously missed some time with an injury. Um, but they needed those two to be co-aces, and they have not been co-aces in 2023. Yeah, and Scherzer, I love how transparent he was after the game when he was asked what the problem was. He said, my slider. You know, I gave the numbers top of the show that were related to me from Sarah Lang's swing and miss rate down on his slider from 46% to 32%. That's a dramatic drop. Nine sliders last night, one swing and miss. Uh, He was hanging the ball all over the place. And he talked about adjustments that he needs to make. But, I mean, you know, and I quoted this morning when I did TV, you know, the Derek Jeter's line that, uh, you know, before you're 30 and you don't play well, they say it's a slump. When you're after 30, they say you're old. And I think that's absolutely right. And I asked, uh, you know, one evaluator with another team what he sees in Verlander and Scherzer right now. And his answer was, sucks to be old. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the question. You know, is the fact that Verlander's not getting as much ride on his fastball? Is the question uh, about Scherzer? The, the fact that he just can't spin the ball as well as he used to as he gets older and he turns 39 in the in the month of July, um, you, you just can't run from those things. Which way do you think it is? Do you think this is a case of guys getting old or do you think it's a case of guys 
who need to get in the rhythm of the season and, and have an opportunity to make adjustments. I was thinking about this the other day, Buster, because when you look at the history of power pitchers and when they lose it, it's actually usually with kind of a traumatic injury. You know, you think of Pedro Martinez, Randy Johnson, Nolan Ryan. These guys were all still pretty dominant until they got injured and their careers kind of came to an abrupt ending. It's not usually a slow decline. You think of the more finesse guys like Tom Glavin, Greg Maddox. It was just kind of a slow deteriorate deterioration from greatness to mediocrity. Power pitchers, that's not usually what happens. So I think there's a chance that both of these guys do improve in the second half. You know, the velocity for the most part is still there. You mentioned the swing and miss rate on Scherzer. That's certainly what we've seen. Look at last night. Yeah, he gave up that two-run homer to, was it LeMahieu? Yeah. But there were some ground ball singles, a couple flares. They weren't really torching him, but he's not getting that swing and miss. So I think it's maybe a little bit of a feel thing. I could be wrong. I think both will pitch better moving forward. Now, the way the team is designed, I just don't think that they're going to make the playoffs unless you get a turnaround from the rotation. Because the yeah. offense, at its best, is not going to be like the Phillies' offense. It feels like the Phillies can slug their way into the postseason, right? It feels like the Braves can slug their way into the postseason. Maybe the Angels, you know, with Otani and, and Trout leading the way. Maybe they can do that. I just don't think the Mets can do that. And I think that their bullpen... Um, you know, with Edwin Diaz out, I think the reality is is that they're going to have some days when it just doesn't work out. And so if the team's going to be led, it's got to start with a rotation. Do you see a path for them if the rotation, uh, you know, doesn't have a major turnaround? No, it's got to get better because the lineup, you know, especially with Alonzo out, there's not a yeah. ton of power, um, plus a lot of 30-somethings in that group as well. So I'm not looking for those guys to dramatically Turn things around the bullpen. Yeah, the late innings have been okay with David Robertson, but a complete lack of depth. So those middle innings in, in close games are always a risk for the Mets. Yeah, it's Scherzer and Verlander. Well, it's the three, four, five guys as well, you know, but it's it's mostly those two. Yeah, they have to pitch better, no doubt about it. So Drew Smith was ejected from last night's game. He's facing a 10-game suspension. That'll come down, I assume, later today. I thought that Max Scherzer made a great point. He, of course, someone who was suspended earlier this year. He feels like these situations, because there's so many variables involved, you know, what's sticky, you know, the determination made from umpire to umpire to umpire to umpire, it could be completely different as to what's the stickiest hand I've ever felt, which seems to be the line now that we hear from umpires. I agree with Max that this uh, is a situation where it should be backed up by data. I, I mean, the reason why sticky stuff became a thing was because pitchers used it to maximize spin rate. Those jumped up dramatically. That's why Major League Baseball is cracking down. And I feel like that, you know what, if you get a Drew, let's say that, uh, you know, he wasn't checked coming into the game last night and he went out on the mound and his spin rate was spiking by 500 you know, or 600, and yeah, you, someone can buzz in Bill Miller's ear and say, hey, you know what, that looks kind of ugly, and it looks like he, uh, it's possible that something's going on there. Then you check the hands. Then if they're sticky, okay, suspension. For him to be checked before he comes to the game, before he even seen him spin a ball in a game, I, I do agree with Max. That's one change that they could make. What do you think? 
Well, I'm going to disagree a little bit with you. I okay. get his point, and that's a good point. I think this is in his head a little bit because there's only been three pitchers who have been caught. Two of them happen to be Mets, and Domingo Herman of the Yankees was the third guy. So it's not like we're getting pitchers ejected or caught left and right. So I think Max, I think he kind of needs to let this go and worry about improving his slider <laughs> rather than, you know, the, the rate of pitchers getting caught using sticky substance. His point's not wrong. I'm with you. You know, we have all that data to see who is spitting the ball at what, you know, RPMs and all that. But again, it's not a big issue. We're not seeing a lot of pitchers getting, getting caught. It is interesting that the guys who have gotten nailed are all in New York, (laughs) because I can tell you that the conspiracy theory among club staffers, and this is across the board in baseball, they feel like, you know what, when New York guys get banged, that means it's major league baseball is trying to make an example of high profile players. And I don't know if that's true or not, but it's a hell of a coincidence that all the guys are New York pitchers who are getting nailed on this thing. Uh, Tell me what you saw in the Yankees last night in that uh, first game of the series. Well, you know, I talked to Yankee fans, and a lot of them have, have, through the years, been a little down on Aaron Boone. But, Buster, look at this lineup they rolled out last night. Jake Bowers hitting leadoff. Jake Bowers, was he even in the majors last year? Glaber Torres hitting third. You know, he's not a great number three hitter anymore. You know, Kiner Falefa playing center field. Billy McKinney's back in the majors. Anthony Volpe is going to have a great future, but he's hitting under 200. This is not a good lineup. They use, what, six relievers um, because Severino got knocked out in the fifth. They won the game. I think Aaron Boone is doing a lot of great work with this team, especially without, uh, obviously, Aaron Judge right now. Yeah, and they're going to be without Aaron Judge, I think, for a long time. You know, I mentioned in our pregame show on Sunday Night Baseball the other day, I think based on what I've heard, the Yankees would be thrilled if he got back by the all-star break because it's a big toe injury. It's not something, you know, he's walking around in a shoe. It's not something you can see, but he's not in a walking boot. And so it feels like that it's been downplayed a little bit, but here's the reality. He's six foot seven. He's 282 pounds and big toe injury, right? Big toe injury for someone like Aaron judge is a right-handed hitter. The torque on that toe is enormous. That is the anchor of his swing. Like, they can't rush him back because, you know, you're talking about potentially developing into something akin to turf toe. Yeah, and then I'm sure Buster, you know, factoring in, you know, his injury history. Yeah, he's been pretty healthy, you know, 2021, 2022. But, you know, he has that history. So they're going to be, I think, extra cautious, right? And they're hanging in there. You know, if they were uh, 500 right now, there might be more of a pressure to get him back sooner, but I think they're going to roll with this. Look, can they keep winning with this lineup? I don't know. I mean, Stanton 808 OPS, that was the best of the team last night. Um, so they clearly need judge, but you can't rush him back. What an incredible wild card race we're going to have down the stretch. You know, you got uh, Taylor's Orioles are playing great. Gunnar Henderson's going off these days. The defending champion Houston Astros are in that. The Yankees, as you say, they've been rope-a-doping it even without judge. They're winning some games. And you have the Angels, who as of this morning, you know, we always the, the Angels have sort of become a punchline in the last decade because they've had the best player in baseball, Mike Trout. They still can't win. And now they have Sho- Shohei Otani in recent years, and they still can't win. 
as of this morning, seven games over 500, one game out of the third wild card spot. Yeah. And Dave, I don't think they're going away. No, look, they got to make it one of these years, right? And hopefully it'll be in the final year, we think, that Troy Otani will be in an Angels uniform. Um, yeah, look, Rangers have been great. Astros are still there. I think what's helping the Angels is the Mariners look pretty mediocre. So I think that clearly makes the Angels the third team in the AL West. But yeah, look, obviously it's going to be a dogfight with all those AL East teams. But um, I think it's a little better Angels team than we're used to. The pitching, we got to see. I'd like to see Tyler Anderson um, pitch a little better. Reed Detmers can, I think, has more in him. So, yeah, I think I think they're going to hang in there all year. What an emotional night in Oakland. You know, fans showing up, 27,000-plus, uh, chanting, sell the team. And as that's going on, the Nevada State Senate approves funding for the new ballpark uh, in Las Vegas. And the way that, uh, you know, Taylor and I translated that tweet by the Oakland Athletics announcing precisely – how much revenue they drew in with that game and that they're donating it to charity, you know, on one hand, and, and it may have been absolutely in earnest that they feel like, look, we're going to respect the fans and we're going to, you know, give their money to charity. Well, and I translated as a big middle finger to the fans. <laughs> like we are out of here and you know what? We're not taking your money because we just got $380 million or whatever the number was from the state Senate in Nevada. How did you translate that tweet, which was really unusual for a team to specify how much revenue they took into the game? Yeah, that look, I, I think it was a good move to obviously donate to charity, but to actually give the dollar amount. Yeah. I kind of side with you guys. Oh, John Fisher, by the way, worth $2.2 billion. So what percentage of that is 800,000, right? That's, that's a nickel to me and you, but look, it's hey, charity is charity, admirable move, but yeah, the dollar amount, did we really need to know that? Now let's do some math here, Buster. If 27,000 fans brings in 800,000 in revenue, their average attendance is 8,800. So what's an average game in revenue? Multiply that by 81 games, and we can do a rough estimate of how much gate revenue the A's will have this year, and they'll compare that to their payroll, and we'll see if they're really, quote-unquote, losing as much money as they claim they do. Right, exactly. I mean, you're talking about about $20-25 million, right? And then all the revenue they take in from Central Baseball compared, as you say, to this uh, tanking payroll, uh, John Fisher's making a ton of money off this year's team. It's yep. it's awful. Just you know, sort of the emotional feeling of watching all that. What uh, what did you have there uh, with uh, seeing the Oakland fans and respond the way they did? Yeah, no. Well, I love the Ace fans for the whatever they called it, the anti-protest. It just makes me sad because there's such a rich history of baseball in that city, going back to the great teams of the '70s the McGuire Canseco years, even throughout the last decade, the different playoff runs, you know, they made it in what, 2019, 20, you know, 2018, right? Three years in a row there, you know, they had a nice run. Then they tore that team apart. Just, they've had a lot of really good teams, a lot of really great players. And you hate to see any city lose a team. What we've only seen one major league team, move in the last 50 years um, when the Expos moved to D.C. So, 
it's going to be a sad day if, if and when this move to Las Vegas happens. Dave, thanks for your time. Yep. Thanks for doing this. Good to talk with you. All right, Buster. Thanks. Kip Schumacher is a manager in the big leagues for the first time this year, and his Miami Marlins are one of the surprise teams in baseball. And Skip, I'm curious about this. Uh, you know, you have an expectation going into a job like this about how this is going to play out. What's as you, what is uh, in this role? What you've expected, and what's different than what you expected? Well, coming into it, I didn't know anybody from front office down, so it was a lot of relationship building, getting to know people. I didn't know any player, um, you know, acquiring a, a new staff was, uh, you know, the biggest challenge in the offseason first. And what, I, what I've realized is having a good staff around me is probably the most important part because the messaging has got to be the same. And if they are delivering a different message than what you want to be delivered, then this thing goes sideways. And I've learned that from different places I've been in. Um I was very fortunate last year to be around, a, you know, Ollie Marmol and the good staff there and um, learned a lot. And I knew that, you know, having guys around me that I could trust was really, really big and important, especially a rookie manager. Um, and, you know, acquiring some of these guys was was really important. And, and uh, so that was probably the biggest step that I needed to make. And, and luckily, Kim allowed me to do it. What was your process for getting to know these guys and getting to know the staff members? How did you do that? Well, the staff members I knew previously, except for Stott and uh, Beef in the bullpen. Um, I either worked or knew them uh, previously, as, you know, relationship-wise, um, you know, seeing from another team, like our bench coach, Luis Ureta, um, who's fantastic, was in Arizona, just had a, a real good respect, a lot of respect for him being the bench coach over there. Um, they played the game the right way. They played hard. Um, I needed that. I needed that guy that could um, – also influence a lot of our guys, you know, a lot of the Latin players. He has a huge Latin influence and really good messaging and keeping everyone accountable. That was important. Rod Brajas, I worked with um, in San Diego. John Mabry was my teammate in St. Louis. And then my coach in St. Louis, a uh, phenomenal human being. Um, so I just had a lot of guys that um, I wanted around me that I could trust and, uh, and knew what I was about. Um, and the and the constant similar messaging, like I said before, and players uh, like the communication. The first time you reached out to guys, how did you go about the business of that? Right away, the first day I got the job and was um, introduced to the press conference in Miami, um, I reached out to a lot of the guys. A lot of guys lived in Miami, so uh, right away. Uh, told my wife, love you, but I got to go to dinner. <laughs> so I met, uh, you know, Jazz, Miggy Rojas before he was traded, Avi Garcia, you name it, up and down the list. I just kind of made my rounds and I try to get the pulse of the team, the pulse of the clubhouse, um, try to build relationships early, try to get my finger on maybe some things that, you know, went, went right, went, went wrong. Um, I didn't contact, um, you know, Don Mattingly was my um, coach in 2013, my manager in 2013. I loved him. Phenomenal. But I wanted to make my own opinions on guys in the team. I think that was the only fair way to do it. And as much as I loved Donnie and um, I, I didn't want to get uh, outside opinions, I wanted to form my own. And I thought that was important for me to get one-on-one -on -one relationships started and um, kind of formed those bonds early on in, in the off season and, um, and headed into spring training. I didn't want spring training to be the first introduction uh, of a lot of these players.
So you know far better than I do. It feels like every year, even if it, the same group of players, uh, that each team can have its own distinct culture. Uh, how would you describe what you guys are building with the Marlins in 2023 and, and sort of who's at the center of it in forming that? Yeah, winning sustainable culture is what I've been preaching. And um, a credit to the staff and, and you know, Kim, uh, you know, hiring a lot of these guys. Brent Brown was a part of the Dodger system that has a winning sustainable culture. Um, Mabry knows what winning looks like. Barajas was a World Series champion. So it was important to get those guys around me to deliver those messages, that messaging again. The front and center, I would say there's a couple guys that, you know, have – I wouldn't say surprised me, but I just didn't know how powerful they were in the clubhouse. And um, I would say Jorge Soler has been fantastic, um, you know, being a real pro uh, World Series MVP, obviously understands what the losing side and winning side both look like and wants to be a winner. Uh, disappointed in the year last year being hurt. Um, but Yuli Gurriel, man, he has been awesome. And really, um, Oh yeah. He's you, what you go inside our clubhouse and, you know, I think there's probably eight guys around him in his locker and he's talking to people, uh, you know, about life, the ups and downs of the game, um, certain situations, of the game, teaching the game. Um, again, talked about culture. He was part of a winning culture for a long time over at Houston. Um, and so I think there's been a lot of powerful messages. He's been delivered a quiet leader. Um, but when he, he's a guy that, you know, when he talks, people listen and, uh, it, the, everyone, you know, kind of perks up. And, uh, so luckily we got him late, uh, in the, in spring training. Um, but he's been a, a huge, I needed, uh, as a rookie manager, kind of have those leaders inside the clubhouse that, you know, cover my blind spots. And it's been a, a huge addition. Give me an example of, uh, Jorge Soler in terms of seeing him a, a, a moment when his leadership manifested, uh, whether it was in a game or in a clubhouse, uh, you know, some sort of situation with your players. Yeah, there's, you know, we have a young pitching staff, uh, you know, Sandy won the Cy Young, but other than that, you know, we have a very young pitching staff that I'm not even sure they're even in arbitration yet. I think maybe one. And, um, and so, you know, we have, uh, guys that, you know, get a little bit frustrated at times, you know, with their performances, and, you know, he's the guy that will stand him up straight and, uh, you know, keep him engaged. Um, so I, I don't know if I should, should give you specific examples, um, but I will tell <laughs> you that uh, but that Soler is the guy that, um, uh, you know, will, will hit people straight um, with, you know, his his messaging. And um, and you're, it's only good when you're mess when you message another player. It's super important. By the way, it's way more important when a player delivers the message and not the coach, right? Just way more impactful, so much more meaningful. But when a guy is doing it out of the goodness of his heart, it's not just some BS move to, you know, because the coaches are saying it, um, it, it, it means a lot. And uh, so I think when he stands people up, it's out of the goodness of his heart and, and to get people right. So it wouldn't be a fair question to ask you whether or not you think Luis Rye is going to hit 400 this year, you know, be the first guy to do it in what, uh, you know, 80 years or whatever. But tell me about him as a hitter, your observations that you didn't, things about him that you didn't know before you managed him. And B, and I, I covered Tony Gwynn when he hit 394 in 1994, and I'll go to my grave believing down the stretch he would have loved it. Tony would have loved the attention. Luis Rye, if he gets surrounded by idiots like me, how's he going to handle that? <laughs> well, there's a lot of things I didn't know about Luis. Um, you know, we acquired him, got uh, traded 
for Pablo Lopez, which I know he was how beloved he was here. And it was one of those trades where it seemed like both sides were going to be happy with it, right? Pablo, great human being, obviously a really good pitcher. Um, and when I asked Jace Tingler over there, I said, all right, what are we getting? Um, he just said, you're going to absolutely fall in love with this kid. It's actually the guy that you're going to have to pull back more than push forward. He's that kind of player. So because he's such a hard worker and he wants it more than anybody. What I didn't realize is how much uh, how much he was going to have an effect on everybody else as far as his preparation and routine. And it's kind of carried over to the guys like De La Cruz and the Sanchez's and, you know, credit to Yulian Soli also. Um, but Arias has a, a routine that um, you just don't see much of uh, in today's game. A lot of guys will go in and get loose and get ready. Um, but he literally, and I've said this before, he literally wakes up and hits. He brings a bat to the uh, hotel room and he's swinging it. Uh, he at home, he has a little soft toss net that when he wakes up, he hits and then he comes to the field. So he's literally waking up and hitting. Um, and I, he's just a relentless with his approach. Um, fun guy to be around. Lots of energy. doesn't matter if he's 0 for 4, which is rare. Um, 0 for 4, 4 for 4. Um, you know, he, he brings it every single day and he's been really good at second base too, by the way, um, you know, moving from first over to second, we've had a lot of position changes and he's the transition pretty much seamlessly. But I, um, if I do think that, you know, to your point of Tony Gwynn, I grew up in uh, Orange County in San Diego area. I grew up watching Tony Gwynn and I got a lot of crap for saying, Hey, he's kind of like Tony Gwynn early on, but, um, it's, if you look at those numbers you know, to start their careers, it's pretty similar. So as you guys go forward, uh, you know, trying to, to make the playoffs, Sandy Alcantara is obviously going to have a big role in that. He's off to a slow start compared to what he did in 2022. What are you seeing in him? It's interesting. I don't think he'll admit it, and I don't think guys are going to admit it. Uh, the WBC was different for some guys. and A lot uh, of teams feel that way, Skip, that, that they feel like it affected the preparation. You pretty much hear that sport-wide. Yeah, and I don't know how many players are going to admit it, so I'm just going to say it. And uh, <laughs> so guys ramp up differently, and it's hard when you threw 230 innings um, the year before, and then all of a sudden you're ramping up and trying to showcase and defend your country in a WBC. Um, with And I went to a couple of those games. It was fantastic. It was great for the game. However, as a manager, you're like, oh, gosh, oh, gosh, right? And you see him ramp up in the early part of that spring training. And you're like, man, this guy's ready to go now. What you don't usually see out of your ace pitchers, you know, in my early career, um, that early in spring training of throwing 98, 99 miles an hour with like your secondary stuff being sharp. Um, so I think that that had something to do to do with the slow start of a lot of major league, uh, good arms right now of having some slow starts. So he's never going to give you an excuse but I think you're going to see a really good second half version of Sandy. All right, Skip. Well, congratulations on your start. Uh, we'll be watching. Thanks for the time. Of course. Anytime, Buster. Thank you. Bleacher Tweets. Already, Buster. Bleacher Tweets for a Wednesday, a New York-themed edition of Bleacher Tweets. It just kind of happened that way. So sorry, West Coasters. Uh, Andrew Campbell at Real Cam Drew rates. And Buster, are the Yankees currently fumbling this Anthony Bolt Volpe Oswald Peraza scenario and the two strike whale at the stadium is from Star Wars, a noise from the Death Star in the original films, as in Evil Empire and Cashman's old fully operational Death Star quote.
Yeah, Drew, did you uh, you didn't uh, make it clear whether or not you liked the 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 Star Wars sound effect? You know, mm. I, uh, I, I need I to hear that does. from you for sure. Personally, about that shortstop situation, I like the way they're handling it. I think that Annie, Anthony Volpe is helping the team enough. Uh, you know, he's getting enough big hits like he did in the game uh, in, in City Field last night. And he's playing good defense, and he doesn't lose confidence. I mean, that's that's one of his strengths. I actually think it's the right thing to do. I don't like the idea of boomerang players up and down. You know, see what the Cardinals are doing with Jordan Walker. That, to me, is, you know, two bad weeks or three bad weeks and guys looking over his shoulder thinking he's going to be sent to the minor leagues. Here for Bleacher Tweets, Travis writes, in New York, it's a wrap of it being a tough market to play in. I get that it comes with immense media pressure and huge spotlights, but do you think uh, front offices should take fe- that feedback to heart and do things to make players more relaxed, a la Aaron Hicks' hot start in Baltimore? I don't think the front offices can control how fans respond in ballparks, <laughs> you know, or, you know, the size of the media contingent. I've had so many players through the years talk to me, like, you know, playing on a, a team like the Padres who I covered back in the nineties, they're like two writers who, who are around the team all year. And on the other hand, they're 20 reporters in the clubhouse every day with the Yankees. And uh, you, you know, this, uh, that when, you know, if somebody goes into a deep slump in Colorado, you know, if uh, Chris Bryant doesn't pay off, are they booing him on opening day? Are they, <laughs> you know, razzing him right away? No. On the other hand, Joe Carlos Stanton's been swimming upstream against that since he arrived. It's just a different market. And I, front offices can't change that. They, I do think they need to take into account, and they do ask the question, can this guy handle New York? We saw with Sonny Gray, he didn't like it. And then on the other hand, I think Stanton really has worked through it. Yeah, yeah. Joey Gallo, Aaron Hicks, you know. That, yeah, look, there you go. It's tough. It's definitely tough. Uh, Don Irvine writes in with the Mets underperformance this year is paying the luxury tax, rubbing salt in the wound. Uh, it's going to feel like that because he's got to <laughs> write that big check at the end of the year for sure. Yeah, uh, it's a, it's amazing, uh, you know, how the Mets right now are, are their trajectory in terms of how they're going to be remembered in 2023. As you know, I'm sure uh, that the 30 years ago, there was a book written, uh, The Worst Team Money Could Buy. Uh, this is like the, the sequel to that. <laughs> Gregory Gosnell at Carl's Jr. 9982 writes in, do you think Cohen's willingness to stand by Epler has something to do with his connection to Showtime? Do I believe that? Yes. And I also think because Steve Cohen knows all about volatility, they invested and he was the one who wrote, you know, writes the checks. He's the one who's going to okay this. In the end, it's his decision whether or not to have the two highest salaries in baseball in the same rotation in Justin Verlander and Max Scherzer. And that's why he's not going to do a George Steinbrenner and blame Billy Epler. He understands <laughs> that there was risk involved when they signed these guys. That's why I gave him the short-term deal. And he understands it was possible that it was going to be a mess. And yes, moving forward, you know, Billy Epler, if the Mets wind up, uh, you know, negotiating heavily with Shohei Otani, Billy Epler is going to have some special insight into him. Last one for today. A.A. Ron at Aaron Plays Major League Baseball writes in, assuming the Red Sox declare themselves as sellers and the Mets buyers, do you see the teams as potential trade partners? The Mets look like they could use Paxton, Jansen, Duvall, and none of those guys are long-term solutions in Boston. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense for sure. Um, You know, Edwin Diaz's absence, I think, has been underrated this year because the bullpen construct that the Mets have is totally shaken up by his absence. Kenley Jansen would be good with that. 
Uh, and, you know, James Paxton, you know, would plug a hole in the rotation for sure. Adam Duvall would add some power potentially. And yeah, if you're Steve Cohen and you got all this, you know, $400 million plus pushing the middle of the table to try to win this year, well, you know, what's another $20 million? You know, you might as well. And, and to try to make it make it work. I love when we can just say things like, oh, what's another 20 million? No big deal. Right, exactly. Because <laughs> it's our money, right? Yeah, absolutely. We feel that pain mm-hmm. if it doesn't work out. <laughs> Uh, all right that's it for bleacher tweets hashtag bleacher tweets on twitter while you're watching games we'll be back on friday that's it for today my thanks to skip schumacher tyler glasnow alden dave sarah and taylor have a great day everybody thanks for listening stay safe and remember hate and equality based on skin color something we need to fight against every single day